right, welcome. Welcome, Jose. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Dude, good. You're good? Beautiful day outside. Great crowd. We're excited you're here. So this morning we continue um, our conversation in the book of Judges. And so in this series, Judges, the Original Heroes, we've been looking at uh, a number of different narratives of a number of different people, very ordinary people, very flawed people, um, that God used to do some pretty extraordinary things. And so the book of Judges records like this very specific period of time um, of God's people. And every time that you take a look at any period of time of God's people, you're always in for a ride because sometimes uh, God's people, religious people, do some really stupid things. Um, and fortunately for us, you too? Yeah, me too. Guilty. So, you know, one of the great things about looking at religious people is uh, sometimes what they do is just downright funny. And thanks to Google, a lot of these things are recorded for us. So this morning, uh, I would like to start with sharing with you a list of some really bad decisions made by religious people um, that I think you'll find entertaining. This is actually a list of actual church names. And some of the worst, probably, church names ever put together. Um, But I assure you, these are the names of real churches in real places. And so here we go. So, if you ever visit Flippin' Arkansas, uh, you can go to the Flippin' Church of God. Um, Make sure you stretch before you go. Um, We've got an Accident Baptist Church. It's pretty awesome. Something tells me they're not Calvinist. Um, We've got the... This is a great one. If you're ever in Dade City, Florida... Got the first church of the last chance, World on Fire Revival and Military Academy. I don't know what kind of army they're raising, but uh, I don't think I want to know. Uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, the Greater Second Baptist Church. We're like the Second Baptist Church, only better. We got a Halfway Baptist Church, because who wants to go the full way, you know? Gluten free cupcakes, um, Halfway Baptist Church. We got Hellhole Swamp Baptist Church in South Carolina. Hellhole Swamp Baptist Church. Uh, we got Faith Free Lutheran. Uh, got Little Hope Baptist Church. Uh, we got No Hope United Methodist Church. No Hope. Just makes me feel warm and fuzzy just saying it. This is great. We've got the original Church of God, number two. Uh, this one sounds fun. A boring Seventh-day Adventist church. And the best part is the pastor's name is Elder Dole. Like, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, that's just pure gold. Uh, Harmony Baptist Church. Um, not funny on its own, but it's really funny when you consider a half mile away, there's Harmony Baptist Church number two. So apparently not so harmonious after all. Uh, We've got Battleground Baptist Church. Uh, they just study Revelations and read a lot of Tim LaHaye. Uh, waterproof Baptist Church. Uh, Country Club Christian Church in uh, KC. Um, James Bond United Community Church in Toronto. That's awesome. Closely related, this is my favorite one. This is uh, St. Martini Lutheran Church, which is my favorite saint. And it's the only church where you go where the pastor actually looks and sounds better as the service goes on. (laughs) Got a First United Separated Baptist Church in Indiana. First United Separated Baptist Church. Uh, In Kentucky, uh, Hell for Certain Church. Yeah, 
we got uh, Lover's Lane Episcopal Church. Got a killer singles ministry, I'm told. In Florida, Mary, Queen of the Universe Church. Uh, in Durham, North Carolina, the new aggressive church of deliverance. Oh, you will be delivered. We got uh, in Eros, Louisiana, Strange Methodist Church. Uh, in Alabama, Burnout Baptist Church. It's great. Uh, in the UK, we got Bear Methodist Church. And yes, they actually do have a ladies' choir, I checked. International Church of Cults in the UK. It's pretty cool. Um, we got uh, Pas- Passion City. Not to be confused with the adult superstore off I-94. That's a church, Passion City. Uh, Carpenter's Shed, which is, you know, everyone thinks you're a tool anyway, so why not? Come. Um, and then finally, Spread Church, which I just, I couldn't think of anything not dirty to say. But, um, and you know what, we shouldn't, we probably shouldn't talk, you know, with uh, the name uh, Mosaic Church. I get a lot of really funny comments from people when I tell them that I pastor a church called Mosaic. And I've had some people ask if it's a reference to Moses, you know, like we're followers of Moses. So no, we're actually followers of Jesus. It's, and you have to explain it to them. A lot of people actually start to ask questions, uh, you know, thinking it's a cult. You know, they'll start asking, like, what kind of church is that? You know, and so naturally I mess with them. But um, I think it's okay to laugh at ourselves. You know, I think it's, I think it's healthy. Uh, the truth is there's a lot of things within Christendom uh, that are pretty funny. And sometimes you just have to laugh so you don't cry. You know, and I think uh, it's therapeutic. And I think, honestly, being able to laugh at yourself is a sign of maturity. You know, when you get really defensive, it's usually more of a sign of insecurity. And so I think when it's done in grace and love, like, we can laugh at one another and, and even laugh at ourselves. But the sad reality is, uh, I think if we're really honest, um, when people think about the church and they think about Christianity, uh, I don't think most people think about things like grace and love. Now, I don't think that we're really well known for the grace and the love that we extend to one another. Uh, the more people that I get to know who are disconnected from church and just never grew up in the church world or dropped out at some point, um, the more I'm realizing that we are often viewed uh, by our anger um, and the divisions um, that come to define us. Divisions between denominations, uh, divisions between different kind of sects of belief, um, just the different fighting that happens oftentimes um, within Christianity. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about division. I want to talk about unity. And I want to talk about a woman named Deborah. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Judges 4, if you have a Bible. Uh, if you have your smartphone, Judges 4. If you need a Bible, we've got some in the back. Uh, just raise your hand and Jacob will get one into your hands. So Judges 4, beginning uh, in verse 1, says this. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hegoim, which I, I think is down by Waco, but I'm not sure, uh, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, and he had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. So, again, this is a common word, a common theme that we find. Uh, If you tuned in at all uh, over the last few weeks to the podcast or you've been here, um, this is one of those things that we find a lot in the book of Judges. And throughout the whole Old Testament is this repeated pattern um, of God's people sinning against God and and doing their own thing. Um, And then God lets them kind of live with consequences of straying from Him. And And the result is 
the consequences of sin, which are with our death and suffering and poverty and injustice and all these things. And so God lets them live with that. And this pattern that we find over and over and over again is they do that, they suffer long enough, they try everything else but turning back to God. Um, and they live in that, and then eventually when they have nowhere else to turn, they turn to God, and God in his loving kindness uh, eventually responds with love and grace and raises up a leader uh, to deliver them. So for 20 years, they've been dominated uh, by the Canaanites, uh, so much that it tells us in chapter 5 that basically village life has ceased to exist. People aren't going outside. Farmers aren't going outside, as we talked about, is uh, kind of a big issue, and that's how you survive. Um, They're just staying inside because they're so afraid for their life. But God hears them and raises up this leader uh, to to deliver um, the Israelites. So verse 4, it tells us, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and in hill country, the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. All right, so this particular judge, Deborah, um, is very unique in a number of different ways. One, she's not a military leader. And one of the things that we've found up until this point, and you find throughout the rest of the book of Judges, is that oftentimes they are military leaders. In fact, every other one that God raises up was a military leader um, because these people were being dominated and subjugated by their enemies, um, that was how they were going to be delivered, was through military force. So all the other judges were military leaders, uh, but we're told that Deborah's not. Deborah is actually a civil leader. And a couple weeks ago, I told you, you know, when we talk about judges, what we're really talking about is leaders. And so if you wanted to just put in leader wherever it says judge, uh, you could do that, and it would serve you pretty well. And I encourage you not to think of Judge Judy, because that would give you the wrong idea of what judges are. But in some sense, all right, Deborah was kind of that way. Um, she was somebody who settled disputes for the people. So we're, we're told that she is just this, we know that she is this highly respected um, person uh, among the people. She's this person of uh, great character, judging fairly, and that she was very, very sharp. All right? She was a smart gal. And so she had this uncanny ability uh, to listen to varying accounts from multiple sources, to, to see what's really going on, to get to the heart of the issue, and to make a judgment um, that was really, really wise and really, really fair. So even when people disagreed with her, they kept coming back to Deborah because she was just that kind of woman. She was held in high esteem. Number two, the text tells us that she's a prophet. Um, so in other words, she was a woman who walked very closely with God, and she was very intimately connected with what God was doing and heard his voice. And so she was this woman of godly character. And as a prophet, God would speak to her, she would hear God's voice, and her job was then to relay to the people uh, what God had said and what he desired of his people. And so as a woman uh, and as a person with godly character, we know that amongst the judges, uh, this was very unique because a lot of the judges were punks. And they had all types of blaring character flaws. Um, even the leaders that God raised up oftentimes just made very, ba- very bad choices. Uh, but Deborah was not that way. Deborah had uh, godly character, and she was a prophet. And then three, uh, the third characteristic that's very unique to Deborah is that Deborah was a she. Right? She was a woman. Um, none of the other judges were women. Were women. And after the period of judges, we know that the, the, the monarchy comes and, and there's kingship that's entered in. And there were no queens, right? They were all men. And all 11 other judges were men. Uh, but Deborah was a woman. And I think like, this, is, this is really profound for us to see because in a period of time in the ancient Near East, when it was very normal for women to be seen as little more than property and spoils of war, this woman enters in who is clearly, we don't know if she has any official title whatsoever, but she is viewed and perceived as the leader of Israel, which is incredible. 
right? We're, we're introduced to this, this very strong, very gifted, very called and anointed uh, woman of faith, this leader. And I love that the story actually, it never says that her being a woman is an issue. It makes absolutely no mention of that, which tells us, uh, I think, that she was very clearly the person for the job, that she emerged in this period of time as clearly the one that was the leader that people looked to to settle disputes, who looked to for wisdom, um, which is really cool. I think it has a lot to say about just God calling women that are gifted to lead, that there are women that are gifted to lead, they're anointed to lead, and uh, that was Deborah's role, and I love that. So God speaks to her, uh, and he unveils to her um, his bold plan to deliver Israel, and uh, she doesn't hesitate. She tells, uh, God tells her to go and connect with the guy who essentially is the military uh, leader of Israel or the closest thing that they had at that time um, because she was not a uh, commander of an army. She wasn't gifted in that way. She was gifted with wisdom. Uh, she was gifted with discernment, um, but she wasn't gifted in military tactics. She wasn't a clear military leader. So it was going to take multiple people for, for God's desire to, uh, to be played out here. And it turns out that Barak, uh, she, he tells her, Go tell Barak, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to deliver uh, the people, and this is the role that you're going to play. And we see that Barak's going to play a very unique, a very important part. So verse 6. So uh, she sent for Barak, uh, Barak, the son of Abinam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River Valley and give him into your hands. Now, as we've, now, as we've already alluded to, this is, this is a pretty big task. right? Because essentially what she's saying is she's going to Barak and saying, this is God's will for your life. You need to take just 10,000 men and you need to go pick a fight with this superior army. Right? And this was uh, the beginning of the Iron Age. So 900 iron chariots was a really big deal. These were very sophisticated weapons of war. It also tells us that, uh, you know, as this sophisticated warring people, they're better trained, they're better equipped, uh, they have better equipment, um, and they're four times the size of the army that uh, Barak is going to be allowed to take with him. Now, and, and, this, and also, you know, a very interesting part of the story is that uh, she is relaying this to Barak. So Barak doesn't hear this from God. He's hearing this from Deborah. And I don't know if you've ever had somebody come up and tell you, hey, I know God's will for your life, but it's really obnoxious. And so she essentially goes to Barak and says, hey, guess what God says? You're supposed to go put your life on the line and lead this army against a superior force, um, and good luck with that. You know, and so Barak doesn't, Barak doesn't respond very well. And I don't know if you experience this, but as a pastor, um, I'll just tell you that it's pretty normal for people to come up and say, hey, I believe that you're supposed to do this. And it's God's will for you to do this. And it's, it's really obnoxious. I don't know if you've ever had it. Maybe it's a mom or a dad or a friend or just some random stranger. Um, but it's really, it's really hard to take seriously and with grace sometimes. Um, especially when you're busy and you have a lot of different things going on. And uh, it's just a hard part, honestly, just a moment of confession. Um, a very hard time part of being a pastor is that oftentimes people think, they know what you're supposed to do and what church is supposed to look like and what a pastor is supposed to be. And sometimes it's really not possible. So sometimes, you know, when people come up and they'll say, hey, I've got this great idea that you should do and you should pull together. Um, my response, just so you know, in this setting, in this church, is it's usually, 
hey, that's great. If you're so passionate about it, maybe God's calling you to do it. You know? So how can I encourage you? How can we encourage you and resource you to do this thing? And uh, I personally, I think that's essentially really what the church is meant to be. And, and there's been some great things even this summer that have kind of come out of people taking the lead and responding to God's leading in their lives. And, and a couple of great examples are uh, Brian and Chelsea Marine started our Mosaic Teens ministry because they saw a need. They saw a need and, and felt that God was moving them in that direction. And, and so thankfully, rather than you know, saying, hey, you should start this, um, they said, hey, we should start this. We'd like to start this. And, and our response as a church is like, just go. That's awesome. You don't need our permission. Go. Serve the city. Step into these needs. Another great example is Sarah Pearson, um, who leads our single moms ministry. And we didn't decide, hey, we need a single moms ministry, and let's go look for a leader. That was birthed out of what God was putting on her heart. Um, and so when people come up to me and they, you know, they say, hey, this is thus saith the Lord, um, it's very hard for me to take seriously, very hard for me to take graciously at times. I try to be sensitive because I know that God does speak through other people, but my initial reaction is to be skeptical, and that's essentially what Barak's reaction is to Deborah, um, is what we find. He, he responds to her in verse 8, says this, she says, uh, or he says, if you go with me, I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. All right, so Deborah, hey, that's great. I'm glad you heard from God. Um, if you're so sure that this is what God's going to do and this is what God told you, then surely you won't mind putting your neck on the line and coming out with me. Um, but if you don't go, there's absolutely no way I'm doing it. And so in verse 9, she responds. She says, certainly I'll go with you. Uh, but because of the course that you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So in that day, you know, if you were just to look at... Uh, a given battle. And let's just say there's two sides, there's two generals. Um, the way that it would work, is it was part of the honor of being a commanding officer and defeating an army. Part of the honor of being the, the general in chief is you got to decide the fate of the other general. So oftentimes when they engage in battle, the soldiers would be very careful not to kill uh, the commanding officer in the other army because that was a privilege that was reserved for, um, for the other general. And so sometimes we find that in the Bible they do a lot of different things. Sometimes uh, if he's a very good king, um, he'll allow him to be kind of like an exile in his land, and he's a, this slave, kind of prisoner of war. Sometimes they would cut off their thumbs, which would really not be cool at all. Um, and sometimes they would uh, just outright kill him. And so that would be, uh, that was just a part of the honor. Um, and so Deborah is saying, look, because you're going about this, this way, the honor for this victory is not going to be yours. It is going to go to a woman. And remember, Deborah is a prophet, so that's what she's doing. She's prophesying here, saying this is how it's going to play out. And so Barak says, all right, I'll go, but only if you come with me. Now, in commentaries and, and a lot of sermons from guys like me, typically the way that Barak is treated because of this is he's kind of looked upon as a wuss. You know, that, that what he is doing is here is he was really being a coward. Deborah is portrayed as this very strong woman, which she is, but he's kind of depicted as this guy who's tucks his tail between his legs and needs this lady to accompany him to the battlefield. And I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't think that's really what's going on at all. I don't think he needs to turn in his man card just yet. Because what I think is I think Barak understood something. Right? He understood that what was being asked of him. And that he was being asked to step into a situation that was so far out of his control, that was so much bigger than he was, that he knew that he absolutely needed God to come through for him. And that if God did not come through for him, like Deborah said he was going to, that it would be the end of Barak. His life was going to be over. He was going to be in very big trouble. And when he looked at Deborah, I think Barak simply saw in her what you and I see in certain extraordinary individuals of faith. 
You know, if you, there's certain people, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this, there's just certain people that God's presence is so strong in. And it just seems like everything they touch turns to gold. It always seems to work out. They speak in confidence. They pray in confidence. And God just seems to use them in this pretty extraordinary way. And I think Barak just recognized that in Deborah. He recognized that God was with this woman, that God was strong in her, that she had this intimate connection to God that he didn't have, um, that she heard God's voice, had this discerning spirit, and that whenever you were around her, you could just sense God's presence with this woman. Right? She clearly had God's blessing, God's anointing. What she said in faith seemed to come to fruition. And what she set out to do almost always seemed to work. And I know for me, like, there have been certain people in my life where, where I, I see that. And I, I try to connect with those people and learn from those people and see if some of that can't rub off on me. And I think that's what's going on here, is that he just simply recognized this and Deborah. And so as he considered this task, right, he's a soldier. He knows that what he's stepping into militarily is suicide. That by the book, there's absolutely no way that this is going to happen. Right? And so he asked Deborah to accompany him to the lines as they prepared to fight this, this battle with this people that have 900 chariots to Israel's zero. They've got four times the manpower. And to boot, they're supposed to fight them in the Kishon River Valley. All right? Which, if you have chariots, essentially just allows you to mow people over. Right? The smarter thing to do would be go fight in the hill country in a place where those chariots can't just you know, mow these people over. But this is where they're supposed to fight the battle. So he recognizes this in Deborah. And if Deborah is willing to put her life on the line, to put her money where her mouth is, right, he's willing to risk his life and follow her lead. So in verse 12, it says, When they told Sisera, uh, a spy went and told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Hersheth Hegoim to the Kishon River Valley all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So the Hebrew word rout essentially tells us that not only were they just annihilated, but there was, uh, for whatever reason, there was a lot of panic. Right? That there was just an absolute crushing defeat, and the people panicked. And in chapter 5, um, it seems to indicate that God used various uh, elements... Um, to intervene on their behalf. And we don't know exactly what that is. Uh, in different narratives throughout the Bible, sometimes God sent, you know, just plaguing hail. Um, sometimes it was, like, it was just like thunder um, that just sent people into a fury. We don't actually know, but it does also tell us in chapter 5 that the way that they were able to defeat the chariots is that in that riverbed that the chariots actually got stuck in the mud. Um, and so they couldn't use them. And so this underdog comes up and punches this, this enemy in the mouth, and they're not used to losing. Um, And all of a sudden, their greatest weapon uh, was paralyzed. They could use it no more. And Israel steps in and just gives them a good old-fashioned butt-kicking. And then our story ends with this little gem. Uh, And I love this. Um, I love that this kind of stuff is in the Bible. Uh, But verse 18 uh, says, says, Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hegelim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was an alliance between them. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. 
I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she opened up a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway, he told her, and if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, just say no. But Jael, Hebrew's wife, Hebrew's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Which is a very important lesson. If you fall asleep in a stranger's bed, it will end in a headache. <laughs> Remember that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was bad. It was bad. So sister is lying on the ground hammered. I'm sorry. Two, two bad jokes. I couldn't help it. I, I had it in my notes. I wasn't going to say it, but I couldn't help. Um, verse 22. Uh, just then, Barak, who's been pursuing, who's led the army in this huge, uh, just amazing defeat, uh, Barak came in by pursuit of Sisera, uh, the commanding officer, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her and lay there, uh, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. Because uh, we didn't know that he was dead with the tent peg through the temple in the ground. But just in case there's any confusion, he's dead. Uh, verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Right, and so we're, what we're told is that what God had told Deborah comes to fruition. Right? Israel is given this incredible victory. Uh, they defeat the Canaanites. Uh, oppression is done away with. They finally have peace once more. Uh, and the honor of the victory goes to a woman. And it wasn't Deborah. It was actually Jael. So Jael gets the honor. Deborah is the hero. And God gets the glory. Right? So it's an incredible story. Um, but in the next chapter, where I want to focus for the rest of our time this morning, um, we're included in the fact that there's, there's more going on to the story uh, than initially meets the eye. There's more going on in the story within God's people. In chapter 5, uh, Barak and Deborah sing essentially a worship song to God to celebrate what he has just done. So what God has just done is not, is not lost on them. They know it's an absolute miracle. Uh, God came through in this uh, supernatural way. The chariots... Um, you know, they couldn't use the chariots. Uh, they knew that this was one for the books and probably a story that would be told throughout the generations. And so they, they sing this worship song. But in the song, we're told um, a little bit more. We get a little bit more insight about what's taking place. And one of the things that happens is Deborah is lamenting over the fact that when they sounded the call for help, and when they sent out the call to all of God's people to band together uh, to defeat this common enemy, uh, not all the tribes responded. And a number of them uh, disconnected themselves. Uh, they let the rest of them go on their own. And they just kind of left them out to dry. And this is something that we find here. Um, but it's also something that we find throughout the, now the rest of the story of Judges. Is when the book of Judges began, all of God's people, all 12 tribes, they come together and they defeat uh, a common enemy. But here, right, they're, not, they're no longer functioning together. And it gets worse and worse and worse. They get more and more divided. And by the end of the book, they're actually handing one another over uh, to enemies. And it actually, they totally hit rock bottom at the end, and they're actually engaged in civil war. And in the process, they completely miss the whole point of what it meant to be God's people. Or they forgot that God had called them as one called people, as one united people, to be a light to the nations. Right, so they became so consumed with their own interests, with their own tribe, they stopped seeing themselves as this one united called people. 
And this division gets worse and worse and worse. And so here's, here's where I want to land this morning and what I want to talk about. is my, Here's my fear. My fear is that thousands of years later, uh, that as God's people, as the church, the new Israel, uh, that we are making the exact same mistake. And that we're suffering a lot of the same consequences. Because you and I were raised in a period of time when I fear that is the norm uh, for us to really get focused on what God's doing in our one little tribe, right, our lo- one little corner of Christianity, this one little expression of the church, and we forget that we are a part of something so much bigger. And what often happens as a result is the fighting and the bickering and the division that Christianity is often known for. And we moved here, um, would have been, oh, in high school, for me, my junior year of high school, um, we, I was told we moved into uh, a church, and, and my dad was a pastor on staff. And uh, I was really surprised to know, and I don't know if you know this, but there are there are churches in Lincoln, um, you know, that have experienced, as there are everywhere, that have experienced a lot of fallout and various church splits throughout the years. And, and, and there are some churches that uh, kind of started as a result of some of those conflicts. There were churches that were started. There were church splits. Two churches became two churches. And I personally think um, that the result has been some bad blood between churches, some turf protection. Um, I know for me, um, when we got here, uh, very early on, and I was in high school and a dork and didn't know a whole lot, but I do remember that, uh, I remember us as, as you know, youth group brats dogging on other churches. And it was like the normal thing. that we would, There were certain churches that kind of had the target on their back in our minds that were clearly wrong. We were clearly right. And we would just make fun of them, you know, we would, we would dog on them. And in the process of being very close to leadership um, at different times, um, I've actually heard pastors rail on other pastors and dog on some other churches. And I'm afraid that there's been like, some very, spir- like, very detrimental spiritual repercussions to that. Um, things that have kind of carried over into the next generation, even things that were done a very long time ago, this division and this conflict and this fighting from one another. And uh, I know for me, it's, it's very easy to do. In fact, I just shared a month, two months ago, um, we had to cancel church uh, because another church has us rented out uh, every, you know, the same Sunday every, every year. And so we found out in the middle of the week, we, were already, we hadn't made an announcement or anything like that, but I found out in the middle of the week, oh yeah, hey guys, you can't have church next week because there's this other church that has the space rented. And so I contacted this church, and I said, hey, you know, we rent out this space. It sounds like you're going to use the outdoor amphitheater and don't need the indoor space till in the afternoon. Can we use it? And, uh, you know, they said, well, let's, well, we'll talk about it and get back to you. So they got back to me and said, no. You know, we, we, we want it for people to be able to drop off food. And, and I'm just thinking, I, honestly, in my heart, uh, there's a certain amount of bitterness. Um, I found myself actually driving by this church and, or biking by and I had this like growing bitter heart towards this pastor and towards this this church, and God just started rocking me on it, you know, just rocking me on it, because um, I w- I started in my mind I found myself starting to get a little prideful, you know I would never do that, right? I can't believe they they would do this, and God just started calling me out on this, and um, and so I made a point every time I, I started driving by, um, first of all I just you know asked for God's forgiveness and. And admitted my own pride and, and all that junk that resides in us sometimes. And I started praying just that God would bless this church. 
And, and every time I would drive by, I would just pray, you know what, God, I just ask that, that you would just spark like a new movement of your spirit there. I pray for your, your blessing, that you would meet their needs, um, God, that you would grow this church and that you would continue to just do your work in the lives of, of the leadership there. Just bless them. And uh, it's, amazing, um, it's amazing what that does to your heart, given enough time. And God started reminding me, uh, for us as a church, how little we are and how big his kingdom is. Because the truth is, for Mosaic, there are a lot of different churches that have been a part of making this community what it is. Um, from the get-go, you know, I, I was in uh, Mosaic in Los Angeles, and they spent two years just investing in my life. Didn't charge a thing. Did they put on this free program. We came back. Um, River Tree Church downtown uh, gave us uh, a lot of the sound system uh, that we use up there, up here. Um, there's a couple speakers. All of our road gear and stuff we got from uh, Brian Church. Um, the Methodist Church in Pennsylvania that Kevin and Jen came from, um, they just started sending support and helped move them here and freeing them to help invest in this community. Um, Aaron Householder, the pastor of Southview Baptist, has become a very dear friend and has been such an encouragement uh, to us. And then there's Relevant Community in Omaha as our sponsoring church. And then Sydney E. Free, who I have never met anybody there, but they supported us during our, our 30 and 30 campaign. And just all these different communities that have been such a part of making this church what it is. And so God has just been rocking. This is one area where God has just been rocking me and giving me such a heart that, that for us, like, I don't know about you, but naturally, because of the culture that we grew up in and, and many of the churches we grew up in, um, there's this kind of idea that the goal is to build our church. Now, the goal is to build my church or your church or whatever. But God is just showing me that for us, like that's not our calling at all. Our, our call is to build his kingdom. And that's something that's very, very different. Building our church and building his kingdom is very, uh, very different. And so as a result, um, I wanted to share with you that for us as a church, that this is something that I want to see us really lead the way in. And so as like we, this month, we start our first like full fiscal year um, as a church. And so one of the things that we wanted to do to just instill in our DNA from, from day one was to continually be sending out resources, sending out people, sending out money um, to what God's doing elsewhere. Right? That, that if at, I feel like the, the moment that we start investing everything that we have, all of our resources, all of our time, our energy, our focus right here, we start to lose sight of what God's doing elsewhere. And so for this next year, like I'm very excited to be able to share with you that, that in our first year that we're going to be giving away over $20,000 to various kingdom projects that don't benefit us, they have nothing to do with us. Um, we're going to be giving away uh, 10% of our total budget will be going to an organization called ARC, um, the Association of Related Churches that helped us get going. And that all goes to plant other churches. And uh, there's other things like uh, you know, various benevolence um, gifts. There's uh, various service projects that we're going to do. Um, we're sending a, a specific gift helping start a church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, and I don't know if you've heard of Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, but they're sending a very good friend of mine to Knoxville, Tennessee to start Ignite Church, which is their first church plant. And so for us, I'm on the board of overseers for that church plant. And so, you know, we're sending uh, financial support there to help um, just multiply what God is doing. And one of the things that I would love to see us do, and I know we can't do it uh, this year, but I think it would be so cool uh, next year. I mean, what if we could do, if we could send like a $50 gift card to every pastor in Lincoln, every pastor, every church, and just say, hey, we love you, we believe in you, 
we're on the same team. We're praying that this, this year is the best year that, you, we, that you've ever had, that God would just blow your church up and do an incredible work there. I mean, you think God would honor that? I mean, just imagine the kind, what that would do for the spiritual climate of this city. You know, that, what that would do to our relationship with, with other churches, just to constantly, constantly be sending out and blessing them. Because it's not about us. It's not about building our church. It's about building His kingdom. And His kingdom is one that is marked by love and grace and compassion. And that doesn't mean that we never disagree. And that doesn't mean that everything that calls itself a church is a church. Sometimes, right, I'm not saying that we never correct one another, admonish one another. All right, Westboro Baptist Church is not a church. You know what I'm talking about? The God hates fags people. Right? It's okay. I'm not saying that it, we, we'd say, you know what, hey, we're a church, we're on the same team. Because I think uh, John Stewart said it best. John Stewart said that Westboro Baptist Church is no more a church than Church's Fried Chicken is a church. Um, because there's no love, there's no grace, there's no gospel. It's just hate. Right? Those are the people that are uh, at the, the funerals of soldiers, um, picketing and stuff like that. And so what I'm not saying is, is that, you know, there's never a time to have a, a theological conversation. But what I'm talking about is slander and gossip. And if you want to get on my crap list really fast, start slandering and gossiping other pastors and churches in this city. I mean, if you, want to, if you want to let me know just outright that you're not fit to lead, you're not in a position to lead, that you should not be trusted with leadership, just start talking crap about the guy across the city who's laying his life down, doing the best he can with what he has. Start making fun of the church across the street because they don't do church the way that you think it should be done. Because the truth is, we need all different kinds of churches to reach all different kinds of people. Amen? So here's what I want to do. I want to see us as a, as a church lead the way in being agents of unity and reconciliation and builders of the kingdom and not our local church. Jesus, before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he prayed this prayer. He said, my prayer, this is, a, this is John 17, verse 20 through 23. John 17. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's talking about his disciples and those who will come after him. He said, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Right. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I think I read that somewhere. A house divided itself against itself cannot stand, but a united church cannot be stopped. And it starts in our individual lives and in being champions of reconciliation. And I know for me that there have been people in my life, people in my story, uh, that I have harbored bitterness and anger towards at different times. Some of them were pastors. Some of them were other Christians. Some of them were family. And those are the seeds of division that I believe that the enemy would just love to stay there and grow inside of you for as long as possible. And so I want for us to lead the way in being agents of reconciliation. It has to start in our own lives. So this is what I want us to do. All right, on the back of uh, every one of those chairs, uh, if you're in the front row, it's underneath your chair. 
is a sticky note. And on that sticky note, you need to put a name. All right, it's a name of somebody who has, perhaps has wronged you. Uh, perhaps uh, it is someone that you wronged. But there's something someone did that has been just divided, that's divided you and them. And there have been lingering uh, times of bitterness and anger, division. And I want you to write down a name on that, that sticky note and take it with you. And make the first step in being reconciled to that person. You know, if that was somebody that you wronged, you need to probably ask for forgiveness. If that's somebody who wronged you, right, then that's a step in being reconciled. That's building the bridge and contacting them. Maybe that's a phone call. Maybe that's an email. Maybe that's a letter. Right, there's, a, there's a passage in the scriptures that talks about uh, when you come before the altar, if you come to the altar and you're reminded that you have a brother that has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and worship. Be reconciled first. Right, so that's, that's what I want us to do, to, be, to, to lead the way in beginning to build unity within the church and within other followers of Christ right, in our own lives. Right, worship team, you can come up. As you're doing that, same time, we're going to take our offering. And uh, if you're a guest with us, we say this every week, and we will continue to say it every week. If you're a guest with us, we don't want you to feel any obligation to give. Um, this is for you. Uh, this is for you. This is not for you. If you have tons of money and it's burning a hole in your pocket, we'll take your money. Um, but we don't want you to feel any obligation. Right? That's really not for you. Uh, this is for us who call Mosaic home. This is our church. And uh, I was excited to share with you, just so you know, you know where some of that money is going. Right? It's not just going to salaries and keeping the lights on, but it's about creating spaces where life change can continue to happen, and that's more than just this space. That's lots of spaces, lots of things that God is doing in his kingdom, and not just our local church. So this is time for us to worship and give those of us who call uh, Mosaic home. Um, and as we're doing that, as you're sitting with that sticky note, I hope it's staring you square in the face, and that God uses it to mess you up, um, and that it will be a source of reconciliation in your own life as we as a community seek to be agents of reconciliation in our city and beyond. So as we get ready to enter into a time of worship, if you would bow your heads with me, uh, let's pray and come before God in prayer and worship. Father God, I confess to you, God, just my own moments in which I get really caught up in building my church, times in which I refuse to forgive and be reconciled with people who wrong me. But God, we just corporately recognize, we corporately recognize that in our own lives, but also that, that you call us to so much more, uh, to be the bigger man, to be the bigger woman, to humble ourselves and make that step towards reconciliation. Father God, I pray for the church, the capital C church in this city. And God, I ask that you would unite that church. There are many lead pastors in this community that are getting close to retirement age. And God, I ask that these last years would be the most fruitful years that they've ever seen. And that they would see unity amongst your church that they've never seen, perhaps never dreamed of before. 
And God, as they, they and their, their leadership teams, their elders come together and begin praying about who would step up and take their place when it's time for them to retire, God, I ask that you would even now be stirring the hearts of that next generation of leadership and giving them a vision for unity and reconciliation amongst your church. God, that this would be a city, man, that this would be a city where your church is unified and it begins to band together in ways we've never seen before to reach this city and turn it upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that. And God, I ask for the courage in my own life and the lives of every person in this room, everybody listening to this podcast, the courage to humble ourselves and take that step towards whoever that is that we need to be reconciled to. Former pastors, friends, youth pastors, campus life leaders, small group leaders, family members, best friends, neighbors, whoever that is, God, that you would reveal that person to us now and give us the courage to step forward and be reconciled. God, we humbly pray all these things in your name as we come to you and worship you.